My name is Carl Hurt. I'm a sophomore at CC. Um, I come from Hastings on Hudson, New York, and I plan on majoring in economics and German. To me, events um, are pretty inextricably tied to the places where they occur. And I am very excited today that we will be visiting uh, the epicenter of the center of uh, the geopolitical conflict that was the Cold War. Um, I think I've always come away with a stronger connection to the events, um, their symbolism, context, and authenticity when I'm able to visit the actual place, whether that's Buchenwald, Bergen-Belsen, or Gettysburg Battlefield. Um, part of this course, part of the goals of this course are to expand on existing narratives and to uncover hidden ones. Um, and I think that there's been a very clear effort to create a narrative about the Cold War in the United States. We're fed a pretty simplistic communist versus capitalist, left versus right narrative. And I think it'll be fascinating to hear another perspective, um, especially in a place like Berlin, maybe even from a descendant of a former East Berliner. Another goal of this course is to critically observe and dissect how history is represented. History is a powerful tool uh, which is often used to interpret and even dictate how we confront present issues. So when it comes to discussion of past events, uh, much of our knowledge, it seems, comes from a societal interpretation and kind of a triangulation of information, uh, which is ultimately highly imperfect and in many ways very manipulative. Um, as George Orwell said, who controls the past controls the future, who controls the present controls the past. Um, I think that'll be very apparent in our, in our uh, museum visit today. Um, and having visited a relatively obscure Cold War bunker uh, that people walk by and through every day, it'll be interesting to compare how a site as central and visible as the uh, one near Checkpoint Charlie that we're going to visit today uh, chooses to use this kind of relative um, advantage in its visibility and its ability to create a more noticeable um, interpretation of these events. In any case, I hope you enjoy uh, the discussion that we have today. Hopefully it raises some interesting questions and brings to light perspectives that may have not come to bear yet. Today we will be visiting the Black Box Cold War exhibit near Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin. This exhibit displays pictures, stories, and various artifacts about the Cold War and its lasting legacy uh, from both an international perspective and from a German and former GDR perspective as well. Uh, the building itself lies on the former Soviet side of the checkpoint. Um, the museum does not only include the history of what is traditionally called the Cold War, but also uh, includes more recent events uh, that have their roots in the, in the Cold War, uh, for instance, 9-11 and the resulting war on terror, which both America and Germany, interestingly, are a part. Um, yeah, so the, the time span that's exhibited in the museum lasts from the end, really the end of the war, World War II, all the way to the modern day, which kind of gives us a sense for the interconnectedness of history and 
the consequences of our actions and how they live on uh, to the present day. Um, we will be meeting and talking with Dora Bush, a German tour guide with the Black Fox Museum. Um, and while this exhibit does not directly discuss uh, the story of specific marginalized people, um, studying the Cold War does provide us with a broad lens with which we can critique uh, the political systems and the societal structures and the narratives uh, that are responsible for marginalizing peoples and in places to a certain extent. So in this way, our, um, our visit today can tie back into our theme of our course, which is the study of marginalized peoples and spaces here in Berlin. Um, and just an example of this in the lens of the Cold War uh, would be the demonization of opposing ideologies like capitalism and communism, how they were at each other's throats and to an extent brainwashing their citizens into believing that the other side was ideologically crazy and, and, and that the other side was absolutely, utterly wrong. Um, I mean, and this kind of demonization led the two opposing superpowers, it gave them the excuse in their minds to invade and expand their influences. Um, Vietnam, for instance, or the war in Korea, or the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and later the American invasion of Afghanistan, um, really represent this. I hope you enjoy the next part of the podcast, uh, which is our meeting and discussion with Dora, and the next part of the podcast afterwards, which is my discussion with two of my uh, classmates. You get to hear our reactions and thoughts about our visit to the Black Box. In the first memorable moment that I've chosen to include, Dora talks about the implications of nuclear weapons and also about mutually assured destruction, which is known as MAD for short. And the atomic bomb is also a very important um, instrument for the Cold War because it changed the, uh, the warfare. Um, I have a very interesting text here. Um, you might, if you want, you can read it later on. Uh, it's from George Orwell. Do you know him? All of you do know him. And the text is from 1945. Uh, so this is just the the bomb in had, uh, the atomic bomb had been dropped like two months ago in Hiroshima, and uh, he writes about what's what the atomic bomb means for society. And he's already very uh, very like his view on the subject is very intelligent because he already sees that this difficult weapon that is so powerful but also so difficult to make is going to produce a few superpowers. It's going to produce two or three, he, say, he says, superpowers that are going to be able to control the whole world because they have this powerful weapon and all the other small countries that are not as industrialized, as powerful, as organized, they're not going to be able to build this weapon. So they are going to be the ones separating the world into two, or maybe three, um, since he doesn't know yet because it's 1945, but he already sees what the atomic bomb can do. And he also already sees what we, what is very important for the Cold War, because um, he says that there's going to be peace, but it's going to be a peace that is no peace, because there's always the threat of a bombing to happen and about a powerful, those powerful nations that are controlling and, um, yeah.
Well, you know, Orwell, he's all about control and about civilization, so it's also his subject. But I think it's very interesting that he already saw that, and it's also what is um, important for uh, for the Cold War. Um, in the more political uh, and um, theoretical or strategical saying, you could also um, name it by uh, a strategy that it was um, like shortened uh, with three letters. And uh, if you say it in one word, it's mad. Has anyone of you heard about mad? You know, can you explain what it is? It's mutually assured destruction. So the exactly. idea that like if one country drops a nuclear bomb, the other nuclear powers will destroy that country. So that would hopefully deter people from dropping a nuclear bomb because of the repercussions it would have on their own citizens. And what it also means is, on the one hand, we are, they, are, they assure the other, okay, we're going to be able to destroy you. So that means they always, if one of the powers adds up and they, they are getting more arms, they're getting their, their, their bombs more powerful, what does it mean for the other side? They have to too, the because it's mutually assured. So if one gets stronger, the other has to get stronger as well. And that leads to what we call the race of arms. And that mainly started in 1950. In this memorable moment, I ask what Dora thinks makes the black box an effective learning space. Part of our project here in Berlin is to analyze spaces and mm -hmm. how those create a narrative about the history that's told. Mm -hmm. um, today we were in Berlin Underworld uh, visiting a bunker. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Very secluded, like if you didn't, if you walked through the train stations, you wouldn't even know it was there. Um, I guess I'd just like to get your take on what you think makes this an effective space for learning about the Cold War. Mm -hmm. um, actually, that is very interesting because right now it is a discussion how this place, what the future of this place is going to be as well. Um, and I think this place being a checkpoint, being one of those, as we had the, the tank confrontation at Checkpoint Charlie, that, was, that took place right here. Um, and also because the name Checkpoint Charlie is known in the US, it's known in other countries as a symbol of the Cold War. And I think that makes it a very interesting uh, yeah, place to actually talk about the, what happened, what is the Cold War and what, what happened internationally and what happened in Berlin. Um, in, yeah, in the Cold War. And um, I think people come here and they often don't have an idea what to expect. They might know the name, uh, but they don't know actually what it is. At least I have had that and like people come here and you're like, okay, oh, they are just Checkpoint Charlie, okay. Um, so I think it's very important to, also we have the outside exhibition where you can just greet without paying, without coming in, without uh, visiting an actual exhibition, but you get information on what this place was, what it, um, yeah, what it meant for uh, for the Cold War, and I think that's why it is um, very good to explain it right. Like people just stumble upon it, and they don't have to actually look for the information. Um, and that's why, and what I said in the beginning, it's interesting what's going to happen because they actually this area it is only free because of some invest investing like banks like mm -hmm. bad banks yeah. they bought this area because they wanted to build big houses or sell them or the area to for to other um they wanted to 
to build, uh, make big money and that didn't work out. So this area and the one on the other side of the street, uh, they are both just like in freeze and um, the black box uh, only asked, like a, they have an, uh, an agreement with the one um, administering uh, the area so that they can use it, but only for this, the time of amount that it takes for to sell the place again and actually get rid of the, um, of the, uh, what do you call it? Um, like when you have uh, your own money. So when, a loan? Yeah, to get, get rid of those, uh, the loans that are like on yeah, this yeah. territory. Um, so, but actually last year they thought they found an investor mm -hmm. and he was going to build something uh, in this, uh, on this territory. Um, and then the city talked, they gave the right to, to write in the, something that they, the investor has to integrate like 20 or no, 20 percent of it has to be a museum about the cold war interesting so this will an exhibit will be here it may not just be this it is a plan yeah. okay so but that's still not decided um and it's still we'll see what happens the next years um but it is the idea that there's should be something about the cold war at check right yeah thank you very much for your yeah. time yeah. <laughs> While the museum tour helped me learn more about the history and implications of the Cold War, and was very interesting in its own right, I initially struggled to see how the material in the museum and the topic in general fit in with the goals of our class. It was only upon further reflection after the museum tour that I began to see the connections with the material and the Cold War exhibits themselves that contributed my, to my course learning. To that end, there are several ideas that I was able to take away from this experience. First, the two very different Cold War exhibits to me served as metaphors for the historical narrative creation process uh, through which history and collective memory are combined and an interpretation of events is created. Uh, Berliner Unterwelten, which was hidden in plain sight, offered a whole new level of nuance to my understanding of the Cold War. To me, provided quite a literal example of a hidden space and therefore a hidden narrative. The information and spaces were there, but only for those who purposely sought them out. The Black Box Museum, to me, represented the opposite type of narrative creation. It was very public, relatively simple, and fairly easily accessible. Um, part of it was even free. Uh, with its central positioning, that is next to an internationally recognized site, Checkpoint Charlie, its interpretation of history is likely to be the more influential of the two on shaping the historical narrative about the Cold War. Um, the second major takeaway that I had after visiting these exhibits was that the combination of material presented by Dora and the two Cold War exhibits really brought home uh, the unsettling idea that history and facts are highly mutable and relative. And these, these are things that we can see today in our uh, politics or global politics. And to me, it's just a very sobering thought that whoever is in power, whether it's communists, capitalists, Joseph Stalin or Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump, 
or Obama. These people can, uh, with their publicity and a relatively uncritical populace, an emotional populace, um, the people in power can can just can change history, can change facts to to suit their their political ends, to consolidate their own power. And I mean, it takes a lot of effort to go against the grain, to question those narratives when it can literally mean risking your life or the lives of those you love. My name is Carl. I'm here with Britta and Caroline. Could you guys just briefly introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Caroline. I'm a senior race, ethnicity, and migration studies major and a feminist and gender studies minor, and I'm from outside Chicago. I am Britta, and I am a sophomore from Hong Kong, and I'm hoping to double major in environmental sciences and German. Very cool. Thank you guys for being here today. Yeah. Um, I guess I just want to start out with a simple question. Is, is how did you like the exhibit? Did it, was it impactful? Did it help you learn? It was different from, um, I mean, obviously it was much different from the other museums we visited, and I suppose I kind of had expectations going into it that it would be more tailored to the goals of our class, which I think was maybe just an expectation that I had had that I shouldn't have had because it was, you know, a museum on the Cold War and it wasn't like specifically targeted towards marginalized persons. So I, I guess my expectations and what we saw in the museum were a little bit different, but for sure I thought that, I mean, there was a lot of information that I just didn't know about the Cold War and it was really helpful for me to have a German perspective as well. I yeah. appreciated that our tour guide was German and she um, provided that she provided a German woman's perspective, so that was also, I appreciated that. But yeah. Just to add on to that, I feel that, um, yeah, even though it wasn't exactly about um, marginalized communities, like you said about, because that's what our course is about, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I feel like learning it from the German perspective is, you know, they were the marginalized community at the time, which is really... Yeah. I think important, especially because I have learned about the Cold War before, and I thought the exhibition was a really, like you know, really nice little, um, I guess, uh, way into seeing into how the German perspective of the Cold War was, especially when, you know, the Cold War was about the U.S. and Russia rather than really about Germany and all, but they were, you know, a part of it. Right. Exactly. And I, you know, like when I learned about the Cold War in school, I, the Berlin Wall was not something that was emphasized as a big part of the Cold War, but being in that museum, it was just like really is a central part of the conflict of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And I just, I had never been taught anything about U.S. history or the history of the Cold War in that way. So like you're saying, Britta, yeah, it was really important and helpful to have that German perspective and have a different centering of um, that understanding of history because, you know, the way that U.S. history taught is taught to um, U.S. citizens is like very limited, very um, yeah. narrow in its perspective. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I agree with all your points. You raised good points, I think. I particularly liked um, what the exhibit did structurally. Like they had a ring on the outside mm -hmm. that was indicated international affairs and how um, kind of the Cold War played out on an international scale. And then on the inside, almost like metaphorically um, 
like building a picture of Germany in, mm-hmm. in the Cold War or Berlin even. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had the events of the Cold War from a German perspective. So I thought that was valuable. And I also, it's, to me, I always get a deeper sense and appreciation for um, the events that occurred mm-hmm. when I'm actually at the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really brings it home. Yeah. A lot more emotion, a lot more authenticity, I think. Mm-hmm. You can say, wow, I stood at the place where <laughs> Soviet and American yeah. tanks faced off and literally could have changed the world. Yeah. Um, did you guys... I mean, we, we went to Berliner Unterwelten uh, earlier on in the day, and that was a very different experience, different mm-hmm. way of um, teaching about the Cold War, especially because it was so it was hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, did you find any, did you like any particular uh, exhibit better? Uh, the black box exhibit did, well, it was better in terms of learning about, you know, the general history of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And that's why I feel like the Unterwelten tour was great for, you know, uh, I guess, giving you some backup information and like a different perspective and like the feel, especially about the feelings of those who lived at the time of the Cold War. Because a lot of the times um, the tour guide, I forget his name, was stressing, oh, Craig, Craig, Craig was stressing <laughs> about how, you know, it's the entire idea of having the bunkers was, you know, propaganda. It wasn't actually going to save anyone because in time of, you know, nuclear warfare, how do you know if it can save anyone? And so, like, it's like from what we learned from the Berliner Unterwelten, we can definitely see how, um, you know, there was so much fear around the Cold War and around, you know, the fear of nuclear warfare. Mm-hmm. However, if we, I feel like if you really wanted to learn about the Cold War itself, um, the black box exhibition would definitely be, I think, the place to start mm-hmm. because you do get a lot, you get the context, you get the details, and just the Unterwelten tour would be a different perspective. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think they complemented each other really well, and I'm glad that we did both in the same day because, like you were saying, Carl, it's like more, Im- for, for me as well, it's more impactful to be learning about something when you're in the physical space where the thing you're learning about happened. And so being in those bunkers and like feeling claustrophobic and really closed in was like a really helpful experience to try and connect to what we were learning about in the Black Box Museum. You know, we had the general context, we have an overview, we had, you know, here's sort of a historical telling of the facts here, but it was really great to also be going down in those bunkers to be like, oh my God, if I spent even two days in here with like 3,000 other people, I would go crazy, right? Just go insane. So it was, I I thought that they both worked really well together. It would have, I think our day would have been incomplete if we hadn't done both on the same day. Um, But yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the bunkers provided a really good um, sort of lived embodied context for what yeah. we were seeing as what was going on overall during yeah. the Cold War. Because right. I yeah. feel like at the 
most of the times when you go to museums, you only get, um, I guess, the general idea and the general perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's why, like, a lot of the times, you don't necessarily get to hone in on the emotions that they feel at a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. Because, like, you know, you get that the Cold War was an entire period. It's, like, a long time. But then if you're talking about the fear of nuclear warfare in a place specifically, like, in Berlin, Mm -hmm. then, yeah, it was a really good example of being able to feel that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, one of the things that I thought about after the fact, and what tied it in more specifically to our course objectives, which is to learn about uh, marginalized groups and hidden narratives, was the fact that the two different exhibits were so were made public in such a different way. Mm. Like to me, the Checkpoint Charlie exhibit, front and center. Anybody who goes there is going to see. Oh. A museum over there, and I, I just I was thinking with that with that power, kind of that advertising power and that visibility, there's an increased responsibility I think that uh, the black box has to kind of be unbiased as to the greatest extent possible and really try their best to uh, give a, a broad picture, which I think they did pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really interesting point that you bring up about visibility, um, and I think it also has a lot to do with um, like the accessibility of the different places we went. Because um, with the bunker, you know, we couldn't take any pictures, we couldn't take any videos, and that was because um, like the tour company had to, you know, purchase the right to give those tours, right? So that makes it much more inaccessible for a wider variety of audiences and it also makes it more accessible um, for the tour company itself. So you have, you know, you also have the fact that like they're underground bunkers, you know, they're not easy to see. Mm -hmm. You sort of have to do your research and find that as an event or a space that you want to visit. So I see what you're saying that like, you know, in terms of like the Black Box Theater is right there. You go to Checkpoint Charlie, it's very much visible, and I appreciated the way they did that because, you know, it's like, if you're going to visit this site of Checkpoint Charlie, you should know the context of what was going on around, you know, why Checkpoint Charlie was created, what was going on in the Cold War, and I agree that they did a good job of making an overview accessible to a really wide variety of people. and which I would agree is sort of the responsibility of the museum to do that because they have the resources, they have the space for it. Um, And, you know, so I think they did a really good job at at doing that. And also in the accessibility thing, I thought it was great that they had much of the exhibit was in multiple languages. Mm -hmm. So especially as an American who um, does not know as much German as I should visiting here, (laughs) it was helpful for me to be able to you know, get a lot out of that exhibit, even though I wasn't a German person. And I guess the Black Box Museum was probably not intended for a German audience or viewers as much, but I think they did do a good job of making that accessible. Yeah, and I also just want to say, like, that I guess because when you like I guess the bunkers would be, like, an add-on to learning about the Cold War, you know? It's like people know that these... Um, bunkers existed but it's not the main thing about the cold war Mm -hmm. like there was a lot more going on politically than just you know the fear that was going on in germany (laughs) yeah Yeah. naturally (laughs) because it was in the u.s and 
um, the USSR. Right. And it was just like, you know, it seemed like it was in Berlin because that was where the Iron Curtain was, the, the Berlin Wall. Right. And so, um, yeah, I guess like, it, then it really does make sense that, you know, the emphasis is placed on, you know, the black box exhibition because that's where they're telling the history rather than the Unterwelten tour because it's just showing a bunker. But I mean, it's still important, yes. Yeah. But I um, another thing that was fascinating to me was um, our tour guide, Dora, talked a lot about the development of nuclear weapons mm. and how that really impact, impacted um, geopolitics. Mm. I mean, really, after you see the effects of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the whole world knows what's going to happen. Um, and I guess another way, I guess I found to tie this back into our course is the um, idea of sovereignty and self-determination of small nations. Mm-hmm. Thing that the U.S. and democracy in general really um, strives, or at least puts a face on that they want this to happen in the world. Um, do you think that mutually assured destruction and nuclear weapons are an equalizing force in geopolitics, or exactly the opposite? I think at the time it was. It was definitely something like mutually assured destruction was to keep it so that, you know, they would hold both parties accountable. So it was like, you know, if one country were to, you know, attack the other, then the other one has the right to do the other, right? But obviously, because they've seen, you know, the atrocities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they they know and they themselves don't want it to happen again. I have a biased view of like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because I'm, I'm Japanese-American, so I particularly have a very difficult time hearing people who say that the dropping of the bombs on Japan were justified. Mm-hmm. I just don't agree, and I would say that that argument comes from valuing American lives over Japanese lives, so I, I have a really just, I have a really tough time with that, um, that argument in general. So. And, and like you were saying, Britta, like during the time, whether it was like the right move, whether it was justified or not, it was happening, right? Yeah. So like mutually assured destruction was, you know, someone was making a nuclear bomb and if like, you know, if you didn't want to be bombed indiscriminately, you had to keep yeah. up, right? So it's like, was horrifying, especially in light of visibly seeing the effects of just the horror and tragedy and after effects of what these bombs could do, but you know, the, the countries were doing it. There was it. It's it was inescapable for that to you know it, that couldn't have not been an option because the bombs had been dropped and everyone was afraid. And so I think a lot of the time, the way countries show power is through violence. And um, yeah the amount of money you have, and that was perfectly exemplified through making the atomic bombs and making exactly. nuclear bombs. It's like, I don't remember who was mentioning it, but I think it was um, uh, Dora, no, Dora. Dora, who mentioned that it's very expensive to develop the technology yeah. um, to even create these bombs. So to do that in the first place, you had to be wealthy as a nation, and you had to have you know the resources and the brain power to do that. So it was really just, excuse my language, a horrifyingly violent pissing contest mm-hmm. the whole time with just 
horrifying consequences. Totally that's was. all it was. It was totally the countries flexing on each other, mm-hmm. being like, I'm stronger. Right. I mean, and then, I mean, just to build on that, when, when you have the UN, I think it was the UN treaty, uh, nuclear non-proliferation treaty. Um, I mean, uh, previously I viewed it as a fairly positive thing, and, and I still do to a certain extent, but I can see how it's problematic because it's dictated by people who already have nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. and you're limiting, or you, it's basically a way to extend and promote your own power and, mm-hmm. and geopolitical positioning. But it's not just that. I feel like it's also to suppress, you know, other countries from being course, able to yeah. raise themselves yeah. to the level. And that's kind of like, you know, the entire model of capitalism. It's, it's, the, it's the exploitation yeah. of countries who have less than you and, like, you know, just continuing that cycle. And that's just the way capitalism is, you know? Right. And the way that capitalism functions in America, in my understanding, is that I will get to the top only by pushing you down, which is part of what was happening there. I mean, like, my success is determined upon the exploitation and devaluing of someone else's labor, body, mind, work, etc. So that's, I mean, you just mentioned, like, that that's mm-hmm. part of what the treaty d- did, was mm-hmm. my power at the expense of your own. Yeah. And, but then obviously, they, you know, they, like, wrap it and sugarcoat it, and they, oh, they right. say that it's all about, you know, the safety of other nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When in reality, it's just, you know, you're justifying your own desires, your own selfish geopolitical desires. On the other hand, I don't think there's a system (laughs) that exists that doesn't do that. Right. A a governmental system that's in charge of people that doesn't sugarcoat their their viewpoints in order to extend their own power. Of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what propaganda, you know, departments and industries are for. That's why they exist. You can't just, you know, pull all this horrible obviously unjustified immoral shit yeah. and expect to get away with it without trying to make it sound good for everyone else. You yeah. Know? And it's not just capitalism, but you know, no, it happens. Not. It happens yeah. everywhere. Like in Hitler's Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Like that's what Goebbels did. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That was his whole job. Yeah. And people believed it. People were convinced, right? Like, you know, that's what propaganda does. Mm-hmm. Um, so another question that this visit to the black box gave me, and particularly the my observation of how public and accessible it was, was the idea of who gets to write the narrative. And one thing um, I noticed was a notion of fabricating, overwriting, or otherwise changing the historical narrative to suit your own uh, political aims and maybe to consolidate Mm -hmm. power. And I was thinking about this last night and I stumbled across a George Orwell quote which, I mean, Dora also mentioned George Orwell in our tour, but this one had to do with, well, I'll just say it, it was who controls the past controls the present, who controls the present, wait, who controls the past <laughs> controls the future, who controls the present controls the past. Mm-hmm. So it's this kind of inter, interwoven power dynamic. Mm-hmm. Whoever controls the past really controls everything. Mm-hmm. Um, just... Uh, I don't know, what do you guys think? Can you respond to that in the context of kind of our visit? And yeah. I mean, I I mean, I mean, hadn't thought about this until you had just mentioned that, but I wonder who funds the Black Box Theater. Mm. I mean, I don't know. It, do you know? I don't know, but I just want to say that the Black Box exhibition was not free. Like, yeah. it just seemed free to us because we walked right. in and we, yeah, we had no, tickets. That's a good and by, that's by accessible, I mean it's yeah. easy to walk into oh, and of course. see. 
No, but it's like it's a, it's accessible that you're able to walk in and see. But it's not like it's accessible in the sense that you know all the Holocaust memorials slash museums in Germany are free for everyone to go to. You know, right. it's yeah. like not, point. and that's yeah. not the same type of accessibility. Like yeah. it's like for this exhibition, you can only if you want to see it, then you can go. Right. You know, like it's accessible in that sense, but it's yeah. not like anyone can learn at any time. Yeah. But um, that's true. yeah. Going back to what you were saying about George Orwell's quote, I think that is so accurate. And also, but yeah, you think about it a lot of the time, like I've seen, like I took IB history, right? A lot, most of the historians that I have read, like that I did read, were white men, (laughs) classic. And so like, that's why I feel like, and they're also mostly from the UK or the US. And, like, these countries hold, you know, a lot of power. And that's why I feel like a lot of the time when we learn about history, it's in, well, perhaps, like, they're not always, you know, criticizing, or sometimes they're criticizing their own nations. Mm -hmm. And, like, it makes them seem more, like, you know, impartial. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, because they're citizens of that nation, it's, like, to a certain degree questionable whether Mm -hmm. it actually is. Or, like, you know, they're letting them off, like, a lot easier than, you know, they could yeah, it's right. it's like it's like yeah, it's like how like a lot of the times when you're learning about how uh, why like so many people are against you know the Weimar Republic when the um, World War One ended was because a lot of Germans were angry at um, how they you know they surrendered and had the war guilt clause when they felt that they you know didn't they felt that they weren't over with war you know and it's the same thing about how people write that and they thought that reparations were too harsh but a lot of like people from France for example were like they're not harsh at all and the UK was like yeah they're okay but obviously Germans themselves because it's a reparation kind of thing placed upon them they would be like you know it's harsh so that's why it's all like you know very subjective and so I think that that's one thing to think about especially when you're talking about the perspective of things Mm -hmm. but I also think yes people who have the power to write about the past have the power to change the future because that's how people generally who don't think about this critically are able to view the past and thus shape the future right yeah and it's for me something i'm thinking about too is like um whose narratives are valued whose narratives are allowed to be distributed and what what sort of agenda do those narratives serve right so a lot of tellings of history serve a particular goal and like I was just thinking about the black box theater. What what was their goal? What were they trying to do with the information they were giving to us? Were they trying to commemorate um, a history of you know like violence and conflict? Um, and if so, why? What was you know? Are they trying to take responsibility for that history, or are they like we were reading in one of our first articles about the new Jewish museums? Are they commemorating with the goal of trying to absolve themselves? of accountability mm-hmm. and responsibility. So I'm, I, I don't know if I know the answer to that question. I mm-hmm. haven't really thought about that that much in terms of the black box, but. I mean, I can, I was thinking about this a little bit and I think the fact that we had a tour and a tour guide mm-hmm. and our group had a kind of orientation and goal mm-hmm. really kind of shaped our experience there. Cause mm-hmm. I don't know how much credence we give to the curators and how right. like, what the knowledge is there that they're exhibiting. Mm-hmm. But when you, you have a historical narrative here, but we were able to, to put our own lens on it 
look for things that we wanted to look for, ask our tour guide certain mm-hmm. things, and I think that helped shape our experience in a more meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add a quick anecdote about um, <laughs> a, I read a book about Stalin. It was called Breaker of Nations. Mm-hmm. Terrifying book. Um, <laughs> worth reading, though. Um, but there's this anecdote. He had a photograph with a, a fellow comrade, um, and later on, comrade falls out of favor with Stalin. He got photoshopped out. Got photoshopped out. Classic. Uh, replaced by a tree. <laughs> it was like a little photo. It was like, yeah. I don't know if it was even published. But, the, but I mean, to me, that really speaks about the power of, of, of changing history. Like, yeah. If, if, yeah. You're, if you're looking back through the archives later on and you see a photograph of Stalin next yeah. to a tree, <laughs> you're never going to think that yeah. it right. was but, but at the same time, it's not, like, obviously, it's not just Stalin. Hitler also did that. Mao also did that. <laughs> right. A lot of these leaders so, did that. Yeah. And that's why, like, that's scary. That's a scary thing about extremist parties. Because, like, yeah, that, I mean, I think Heidi mentioned on another tour as well um, that. Like, they had a previous tour guide who, you know, was giving them a lot of information that was, like, very clearly biased and racist and just, like, very problematic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Heidi, it was on the Women's Perspective Tour, actually, because Heidi was talking to Penn about this. And Heidi was like, I actually feel bad for, um, not for our own class, because, you know, we had the time and space to unpack that and, you know, talk about why that was problematic. But for the other people on the tour, they're going to take that for granted. Oh, yeah. And they'll never question that information. And that's going to be their understanding of that history. And which is really concerning because, you know, when it's presented in a really problematic way, then obviously it's going to have really harmful consequences. Mm -hmm. But these people have never been, those people on the tour were not going to do research on their own, presumably, and wouldn't be given information to think otherwise Mm -hmm. so it's just so tough because it's like really depends on the one person who's telling you that history so it's like a lot of pressure (laughs) thank you guys for meeting today and talking um any last thoughts i don't think so (laughs) i think i'm good all right great thank you thank you